All right. Well, we're going to be in chapter 29. Last week, we just um, started, we just poked into it at the very end of our time last week. And so uh, just by way of review, um, we know that Jacob has been making his way to the land from which his mother came, also his grandfather, Abraham. And he goes on his journey and he gets to the place where uh, ultimately uh, he meets his future wife, Rebecca. I'm sorry, Rachel. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, he has to ask the men who are in the place. He, he comes to a well, and uh, this is where they're going to water the flocks. This was a practice in the time that the different people that lived in a community, uh, many of whom were shepherds, they would have their shepherds in common fields, and they would come to a common place to water their flocks. And this is where uh, Jacob finds himself, and he comes to this well, and there's a large stone that's covering the mouth of the well. We see there in verse 2. And the practice of the place was that everybody would wait till all the sheep were there, all the different shepherds were there, and then they would roll the stone from the well's mouth so that they could water the animals. And, uh, and of course, Jacob arrives at this place, and he asks the individuals that are there, you see it there in verse 4, he says, pretty much, where am I? <laughs> and, um, and he says, uh, he asks these men, where are you from? They say, Haran, which is exactly where he's going. And he asks them if they know Laban, the son of Nahor. You see it there in verse 5. Now, Laban is, would be his uncle. It is the brother of his mother, Rebekah. And, um, and, of course, they know him. He's probably somebody that everybody in the area knows. And, uh, and so... He asks about um, him, is he well and whatnot? And they say that, yeah, he, he's well. And, and here comes his daughter with, with uh, the sheep. And of course, this would make Jacob's uh, ears perk up because as we know, he's on a mission to find his future wife. He's operating on the direction of, of his father and mother, pretty much don't take a, a wife from the land of Canaan but go back to where our people come from and marry from within our own people. And so now he's being directed towards this woman who's approaching them. And, um, and she's a shepherdess herself. And um, <laughs> I love the way, uh, I love the way Jacob says, um, as soon as he knows Rachel's coming, he says there in verse seven, look, it's still high day and it's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go feed them. In other words, why don't you guys scram? <laughs> because I need to talk to this lady. Um, but of course, they remind him, nope, we can't do that till all the flocks are gathered here. And then we roll the stone away from the well's mouth. And so Rachel comes up with her father's sheep. And when Jacob sees Rachel, the daughter of Laban, as verse 10 tells us, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So here he is. He's, he's kind of currying favor. He's, he's um, showing his prowess by rolling the stone all by himself, watering the sheep of his uncle. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's all to impress uh, his hopefully future wife, Rachel. Uh, interesting that verse 11, Jacob sees Rachel and kisses her and lifted up his voice and wept. Now, could you imagine being that young lady? And here's this strange man 
who's rolling stones and watering sheep and then sees you and raises his voice to cry and kisses you, um, I'm sure she would be, at least for a moment, very concerned about what's going on here until he identifies who he is and lets him know that, uh, that he's related. He told Rachel that, that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebecca's son. Rebecca would be Rachel's aunt. Uh, so she ran and told her father. It's like, wow. And I mean, in that day, that would be a big deal. In fact, whenever you got visitors in that day, it was a big deal. Nowadays, you know, we have a whole different view about visitors because we're overstimulated with the internet and all that and encountering people all the time. And we, we have plenty of different options for how we gather information. But in that day, anybody who came into town was a source of news, news that you didn't have and you wanted to hear. So she runs, she tells her dad, um, and Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son. This is verse 13. He ran to meet him. He embraced him. He kissed him. He brought him to his house. And so there's Jacob telling Laban all the things that, that um, he needs to know. And Laban says to him, surely you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. So that's where we got to last time. Now we see that... The wheeler-dealer gene that we've seen in Jacob uh, probably was passed down from, <laughs> from Laban because this guy is an operator. Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, that sounds like a very gracious thing. Hey, tell me what your wages should be. But in fact, what it is is, look, dude, don't think because you're a guest in my house that you can hang around here for a month and not get some work done. So you're going to help me tell me what you want to be paid. I think it was more in the, in the way of, um, of getting him to actually spend his labor, shall we say, on Uncle Laban. And, uh, and think about it this way, is that Jacob back at home is the son of Isaac. He's the grandson of Abraham. They have vast wealth. They have servants that work for them. They have shepherds. They probably have carpenters. They have people who raise food, prepare food, serve food, all of that. And in the haste with which Jacob left his parents, he didn't have anything with him of any uh, significant value. I mean, think back when Isaac was sent to find his wife and he was there with the steward of Abraham's household and he had a, he had a caravan of camels loaded with loot. That wasn't, that wasn't true for Jacob, okay? And so Laban is basically saying, you know, you're my relative. You should therefore serve me for nothing. Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. So in verse 17, we immediately get a distinction between these two daughters. And there's been a lot of uh, discussion, shall we say, about exactly what was meant there in verse 17 when it says that Leah's eyes were delicate. I actually heard one individual, and you've perhaps heard of him, um, he's a very famous Calvary pastor for many years, John Corson. And I heard him teach this passage. 
And he said that when it says Leah's eyes were delicate, that it, it really wasn't referring to her eyes, but it was referring to the eyes of anyone who looked upon her because she wasn't very nice to look at. And so it's like goodness gracious kind of thing. Um, I think that's not the right translation. The actual word that is in my Bible, delicate, um, is translated from a, uh, the, the Hebrew word that means weak. And, and, and so I think it, it really speaks to the fact that her eyesight was not good. Her eyesight was poor. And think about it in that day. If you had an astigmatism, if you were myopic, whatever, eye problems we just shrug off because we go and get a pair of glasses, they didn't have that option. So if you had some defect with your eye, you lived with that. And so I think that's what's being said here. Um, and the fact that this, this transitional word, but, is used between the description of Leah and the description of Rachel would make it safe to assume that the beauty of Rachel far exceeded the beauty of Leah. But it doesn't mean that Leah was uh, a homely woman or bad to look at or anything like that. I mean, I think too much is, is made of that. The, the one thing we know is her eyesight wasn't that good. And in the eyes of Jacob, her sister, Rachel, was, was far more beautiful, okay? Um, now, Ra Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you, Laban, seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Now, this is an interesting development because Jacob is so in love with Rachel, just on first sight, um, that, that he's willing to put all of his energies into serving her father for seven years. And, and, and by the way, I, I recommend to anyone who's considering going into ministry that you start out in the most humble post you can find. If we were a big church, I'd say be a parking lot guy who directs people. Or if, go and work in the nursery and change diapers. Or get on the clean team and man a broom. And I think that is, that is vital training because you, you'll know what it is to truly be a servant when people start treating you as one. This is one of the things that a lot of people who are assisting in a big church, and maybe they're an assistant pastor or somehow they're, they're part of the ministry team in a big church where you've got lots of people serving, lots of segregation of duties, and then they decide, well, I'm going to go out and plan a church. And um, very quickly they find that they're cleaning the carpets, they're plunging the stopped-up toilet, uh, and, and they're, you know, they had envisioned mega church and slick-haired, tattooed pastor. Instead, they are literally, um, <laughs> they're literally doing the dirty, nasty, needing to be done kind of work. And and so here is Jacob, who frankly comes from wealth, frankly comes from being served, and now he's a servant. And this speaks to the kind of love that he has for Rachel. But but it goes beyond that because. What his labor amounts to is the dowry that would be due if, if he, in, that, in their period of time, and even in that part of the world today, um, you approach the father of a woman that you want to marry, it would be expected that you would pay a dowry for her. This is something, by the way, that's still done in, in countries around the world. India, for example. Um, in many places in India, you would pay a dowry 
to your wife's, uh, your future wife's family. And this is a way in which you, first of all, uh, honor the father and mother of the bride. You demonstrate that you're a person who has the ability to provide for her. And, and this is something that's held for her in case her husband should die, that this is something that she could fall back on. The seven years of labor that, that Jacob proposes to Laban would be considered a pretty substantial dowry. A, a man's labor for seven years amounted to a considerable sum in, in relation to what would normally be expected um, of, of them for dowry. So it's clear that Jacob's love for Rachel is real and he's willing to put his labor on the line for you know, not an insignificant period of time and uh, and Laban said, he, he said, you know, again, this guy's a negotiator, so he doesn't want to say, oh, I'm so relieved. He wants to make it sound like, well, okay. And, and so he says, uh, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So he's saying, okay, I'll put you to work, and, uh, and you can serve me for that time. And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because the love that he had for her. This is a wonderful testimony, by the way, to, um, to the idea that true love waits. This is a message that's kind of gotten lost in our ministry to youth and, and, and just in the culture in general. Uh, you know, with the, what we talked about on Saturday, with the over-sexualization of young people in grades that go all the way down to like kindergarten, um, it seems like the adult population of society has kind of conceded to the idea that, well, people are going to be having sex as soon as they figure out, you know, how that works. And, and there's, there's the stigma that used to be attached to not waiting for marriage before you have intimacy, but pretty much pursuing it as something that you'd pursue like a good meal or something. Um, I think this has, been, this has wreaked havoc in our society. Uh, the abortion debate that continues to rage and talking about it in terms of a woman's right to her body. Um, women have always had a right to their body, but they've also had the responsibility of how they allow their body to be engaged in different behaviors and different uh, relationships. And uh, we've lost that basic idea that that we keep ourselves pure until our one and only comes. Could you imagine seeing, as a man, I could empathize with this. You, you see the woman that you love. Everything about her just, just screams out, I, I, I want to be joined to her. And then you speak to her father and you walk away with a deal where I'm going to do hard labor for seven years and then I'll be with her. I mean, that that's seems fantastic in the truest sense of what that word means. And we, we've lost that. Unfortunately, we've lost that notion of, I love her enough to wait. I, I will do what it takes to build a good star for us. And keep in mind, in their culture, um, it wasn't like they, they go to the movies every weekend, they hang out, they watch the sunset, uh, they'd have meals together. They wouldn't have a whole lot of together time. They would have zero alone time. So this seven years was not, well, we're dating, 
you know, we're, we're seriously dating. Uh, the, the whole dating thing, by the way, in our current time, is all the terminology's changed. So I'm lost when somebody says, yeah, we're talking. That means something. Or, or, or we're a couple. That's a new one, too. Um, but anyway, he's, he's, he's committed to Rachel. And it's just a beautiful story. And uh, then we read, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, verse 20, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, <laughs> for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. So he's saying, okay, I've waited, and now I'm done waiting. I want my wife. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now, this seems so unfair, but this is the way it was in those days is that as the wedding approached, there would be a feast. But the feast would be pretty much the men coming together with the groom uh, to have this feast. And the culmination of the feast would be then the bride would be brought to the groom and they would consummate the marriage. And so they're having the feast and we could probably safely assume that they were imbibing uh, fermented drinks. And... Um, and then it came to pass in the evening that, that Laban took Leah, wait a minute, Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Now, it would be dark by this time. It was, it was custom that the bride would be veiled until the very moment that she's alone with, with her now new husband. And, uh, and, and like I said, I don't know, it doesn't say it in the text, that... Um, that Jacob had too much to drink or whatever and was not exactly clear on, on all of the details. But keep this in mind. Um, if I was in a dark room and somebody brought a woman into me and told me, this, here, here, here's your wife, I would know in like a nanosecond that it wasn't. But this is because I've been in close contact with Michelle for 45 years. We've been married for 45 years. He's never probably been more than an arm's distance away from, this, from Rachel. He's, he's not had any intimate time with her. He's not had any huggy, kissy time with her. Well, he did that first moment. <laughs> but, I mean, you know what? I, you, ha, you get a, a muscle memory. You get a, you get a memory. You get a concept ingrained in you when you've been with somebody for a long time, their touch, their, what they feel like to be held, all of that. He had none of that with Rachel. He had, he had had no experience in a physical sense with her, even in the, in the most um, basic and innocent ways. So, so it's not, it doesn't you know, strike, strike us as improbable or, or hard to believe that this woman who is not <laughs> Rachel be brought into him and he would proceed as though he's consummating the marriage of the woman that he desired to marry. And, uh, and Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. Now, consider that a wedding gift. So it came to pass in the morning, and I love just how cryptic this, this next phrase is, that behold, it was Leah. <laughs> It's really almost written from the perspective of Jacob, right? It's like, it's Leah, you know? And, and he says to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? What, 
Was it not Rachel that, that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Now, now here, here we see divine retribution, don't we? Uh, <laughs> because the deceiver is now being deceived. He is literally there because he had to be run out of his home back in the land of Canaan because he's got a brother that wants to kill him for having deceived both his father and that brother. And now he's the one that, that's, that's being deceived. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, my, my new good buddy, Jewish buddy, this is his take on this divine retribution. He, he says that it's divine retribution in at least four ways. First, Isaac's blindness, remember back now when Isaac could not see well and therefore he thought that, that Jacob with, with goat hair on his arms was really his hairy brother. Isaac's blindness equals the darkness of Jacob's wedding night. Neither could see well as a result. Secondly, Jacob is deceived by being presented the older for the younger, the reversal of Isaac's presentation of Jacob for Esau. So he was tricked by being given the older when he was looking for the younger, uh, which is a reversal of his, his foiling Isaac by presenting himself the younger when Isaac was looking for the older. Thirdly, Isaac thought Jacob was Esau and Jacob thought Leah was Rachel. And fourth, Jacob pretended to be his older brother while Leah pretended to be her younger sister. Um, here's where we got to realize that you know, when we operate in a way that's apart from God's will, and, and Jacob should have simply trusted the Lord that, his that ultimately the birthright would be his because God had said that even before he was born. But he didn't. And he did a, a whole lot of devious things. And frankly, his mom did as well. And so we can be in the midst of a situation where we are not acting godly. And yet God works in the middle of that to continue his plan. His plan was that Jacob would be ultimately the one who receives the birthright. He would be that next milepost on the highway of the sea that would ultimately bring Messiah into the world. And this is a wonderful thing. The fact that Jacob's behavior was so reprehensible didn't stop God's plan. God never picked Jacob on the expectation that he was perfect. He knew he wasn't. Neither was Esau. The, the, the selection of Jacob versus Esau was not based on merit. It was based on God's sovereign will. And there are many things that we could see, bless you, in our world where we see someone operating in a way that seems, seems to bring about God's will, even though we look at them and we scratch our head and say, how could this be coming through that guy? Bless you. Our, our experience with our former president, right? This is one of the things that kept being thrown in the face of Christians who were trying to vote issues and therefore voted for the man that they firmly believed would, would, led, would, would, would guide our country in a way that, that was more in accordance with God's will than the other choice. And everybody uh, was in flames and said, we as Christians are hypocrites because here we are voting for a guy who said this, did that, tweeted this, blah, 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 blah. And they point out all the moral failings of the man. And yet the things that he did in office 
were so much more impactful for the cause of Christ than, honestly, any president in my lifetime. It's because of the choices he made for placing the justices that he nominated to the Supreme Court that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Notwithstanding that every president, I think at least since Clinton, maybe before Clinton, said that we would ultimately respect Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, none of them moved our embassy. Donald Trump moved our embassy. Now, is, is he a perfect guy? No. Is he a believer? I don't know. The Lord does. But is, is his failings going to thwart God's plans? Never. But, but, when we operate in a way that is decidedly ungodly, God doesn't excuse us from the consequences. I mean, a lot of what Donald Trump is suffering right now has a lot to do with the way in which he conducted things when he was president. Whether you agree with them or not, whether you think it's fair or not, the fact of the matter is some of the things that he did brought a whole lot of the wrong kind of attention on him by people who had, unfortunately, the power to hurt him. Equally with Jacob. Jacob did things that were decidedly uh, wrong. They didn't, he wasn't trusting God. He was deceiving his father. He was lying to pretty much everybody in his family. Yet God allowed, God did not stop the, he did not look at Jacob and say, okay, forget it. You're not, you're not the son of promise. You're not going to be the one who inherits the birthright. I'm done with you. You've, you've failed. No, no, he was, in fact, God knew of his moral failings before he even committed them. However, Jacob was not excused from the consequences of the way in which he went about his business. And so now Jacob the deceiver has had the ultimate uh, deception pulled on him, the very woman that he worked for for seven years of his labor is not the woman he woke up with the day after his wedding. And, and this, <laughs> this is... Uh, this is, well, Jacob is, is reaping what he sowed. You've heard the, the, the statement, what goes around comes around. Well, it came back around to our friend Jacob. And this is something we have to understand too. You know, God, God has plans for our lives um, and those plans will be brought to pass. God will finish the work he started in us. But we will be held accountable and we will suffer the consequences of actions that we take that, that don't show that we trust God or, or any of that. So here comes the next deal. Laban said, after, after Jacob says, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And here comes Laban, and he says, it must not be done so in our country to give younger before the firstborn. Kind of like, well, I thought you knew that. <laughs> in this country, we, we don't allow the younger sister to be married first. We have to give the older away first. Everybody knows that. Well, of course, you know, Jacob had specifically told Laban, I'll serve you for seven. He had, Laban asked him, hey, you shouldn't be here and not get paid. Because I want you to be working. So what would you like for your wages? He said, I'll, I'll, I'll work for seven years that I might have Rachel 
R-A-C-H-E-L, not Leah. <laughs> but Laban says, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. So here's what he tells him, and you got to follow this carefully because it's easy to get confused. He says, fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Here's what he said. They're talking about Rachel and Leah, right? Jacob is protesting. You gave me Leah. I asked for Rachel. I thought I was serving for Rachel. And so what Laban is telling him is, okay, give Leah her week. That week would be the seven days that they, they celebrate. After the marriage is consummated, there's this another feast, seven days of celebration of that union uh, you know, with, with the family, with one another. And so he said, give her that week to celebrate her marriage where she's not part of a harem. And then he says, you can marry Rachel. So that would be literally another wedding within a week or a little bit more. But you will have to then pay the dowry in arrears by serving me another seven years. That's pretty much what he's laying out here. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. That is, he, he gave his undivided attention to Leah. And so he, Laban, gave him, Jacob, his daughter Rachel, as his wife also. So pretty much he's married both these daughters within a pretty short interval here. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Now, this is important. We saw Zilpah was given to Leah when she was married as kind of a wedding gift. Now here, Rachel is being given a maid, Bilhah, uh, as, as kind of a wedding present. And these two maids will become very significant, of course, in bringing forth the, um, the individual sons that will form the patriarchy of the Jewish people. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. You see how that worked, that he married Rachel, now he's working off the dowry. So that, that marriage of Rachel happened in pretty short order after his marriage to Leah. Now, people look at this. People who are not students of the Bible, like you folks are. And they say the Bible is an evil book because here it is, it is condoning polygamy. It is, it is condoning mass marriage, if you will. Two things to keep in mind. First, all of this happened before the law was given. In the law, man was not permitted to marry sisters, at least not at the same time. So that's number one. Number two... The, um, the Bible is not, it's not like here is your manual for moral living. It contains plenty of information about moral living, but it is not in and of itself only a book that prescribes moral living. The, the, the Bible is a multifaceted book and one of its principal objectives is to present history. This is one of the things that convinces me of the Bible's divine inspiration. 
This is our holy scriptures, right? If you look at the scriptures of any other religious tradition, the heroes of the book, of those books, are the people in the books. They're above the rest of us. They're beyond reproach. Everything they do is lauded. It's perfect. It's wonderful. It's divine. The Bible is a history book of real people. The people in it are everything from, from humble, sold-out servants to arrogant, prideful, selfish, immoral monsters. And they are portrayed in the book because they really existed. And the hero of the book is always God because in the midst of all that, <laughs> in the midst of all that sewage, his will goes forward. His purpose is done. And his grace and mercy is shown on, on the good, bad, and ugly alike. And so Jacob is marrying two women at a time when that was not stated as against the law. It was a common practice. I think the Lord allowed it for a time because the earth needed to be populated. And, and you, needed, you needed to have a lot of different, shall we say, irons in the fire in order for the population to grow to what it would become more or less uh, sustainable. After the law, things are very different, but this was before the law. And this shows the true nature of a man called Laban and a man called Jacob. And you'd ask, well, where, where is the sensibilities of the two sisters? Did Leah scheme with her father to say, hey, look, I'm the oldest here. Push her aside. Let me sneak in there and, and, and I'll be married. We don't know. It doesn't say that. Okay? Now, if Rachel was such a fetching beauty and, and um, Leah couldn't see very well, which would make her less desirable as a wife to do all the wifely duties that one needs to do with preparing food and and tending the fields and uh, all of that. She would be a less desirable choice. And it would have probably been made known to her over the time of growing up with her beautiful sister. So this may have been something that Leah really celebrated, like, yeah, finally I can one-up this woman. Yeah, we don't know. And in Rachel's case, was, was this idea brought to her? Did her father say, now look, Rachel, I know you've been waiting for seven years to marry this man we got to take care of your sister. I mean, it's just not done that way here, right? <laughs> we don't know that either. What we know is, as this story develops, the person who really is hurt tremendously is Leah. Because we'll see that she is, she is the unfavored wife. And it seems as though Jacob makes uh, no bones about letting, people, letting her know that she is not the favored one. And this is, this is, of course, heartbreaking, but this is the way it goes. Verse 30, then Jacob also went to, into Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. It's told us there, right there. And he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, see, the Lord saw this, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, this is, this is interesting, that, that God sees this woman, Leah, in her need, through probably no fault of her own, she was foisted upon Jacob as, as a wife so that her father, Laban, could take care of his fatherly duties. Well, good, there, I got my daughters married off, even though it was done deceitfully. 
Um, and but but now she's in a marriage where she is not loved by her husband. And there are a lot of women in our day who would feel the same way in their marriage that they're, they're, they don't feel love from their husband. Maybe their husband makes it very clear: I don't love you. I don't want you. But can you imagine living in a household where there's another woman right alongside you that he does love? And she happens to be your sister? I mean, you can't make this kind of dysfunction up. But the Lord sees this, and he does for Leah what would be every woman's dream of that time. Obviously, it's not in our time because you know all the reasons why. But he opens Leah's womb. In other words, he grants her license, if you will, the privilege, the benefit, the blessing of bearing children, and particularly sons. Verse 32, so Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, which basically translates to behold a son. And whenever you see Ben as a prefix or a suffix to a name, it's, it's referring to, to, to somebody's son, like David Ben-Gurion, son of Gurion, right? Um, so she names him Reuben, behold a son, kind of like saying, booyah, there, I, I brought a son into the family. I've, got, I've given an heir to Jacob, which would, see, honey, do you see? I'm the one, I, I'm doing the wifely thing. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. This, this really is an illustration of something that's so beautiful in Scripture. It's found in Isaiah 54, 5. And this is a beautiful verse that any woman who is struggling in a marriage where there's contention, maybe there's lack or loss of love, the Lord says through Isaiah, for your maker is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. Whether you are a married woman or an unmarried woman, a woman who has no desire to be married, or a woman who desperately wants to be married, a woman who has a husband, but the husband's not that great. All of these things, you lay at the foot of the cross, you say, Lord, you are not only my maker, but my husband. That word husband has a connotation that says a provider, a protector, somebody who leads you to a place of safety and provision and peace. And yes, an earthly husband could do that. And I hope all you guys who are husbands see your role as husband in that, through that lens. That I married this woman that I would take care of her. Now, this is not an anti-feminist uh, bent here. Women, plenty of women, my wife, your wife, whatever. They can take care of themselves in a real sense. But we have a role given by God to protect to provide, to keep, you know? And, and this is something that, that sometimes men, not sometimes, very often men fail at. And one of my commitments as I came into ministry seeing this was, was, was to really speak truth and love to men and say, don't abrogate your duties as a husband. Husbandry in the world of agriculture is taking care of animals to help them prosper, taking care of them to keep them safe from things they can't protect themselves from, making that flock prosperous. We want our families to be prosperous. Happy wife, happy life. But she didn't have that. And the Lord provided for her, saw her in her need, and gave her a son. Verse 33, then she conceived again. 
It bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which means to heed or to hear. So, so she sees this son as, wow, the Lord heard me again. The Lord heard me in my need. The Lord felt sympathy for me. He, he blessed me by allowing me to bless my husband again in the hopes that perhaps he would love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi, which roughly translates attached to or connected to. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Now, it's interesting, the progression of this. You know, the first son is like, behold the son. There, I, I, I did my wifely duty. I've given you an heir. And then another son comes and her focus is, wow, I'm still not loved by my husband. He still um, doesn't appreciate me. And I pray that the Lord would allow him to see me in this way. And he gives me another son. So I'm going to name him Simeon because the Lord is hearing me and maybe my husband will hear me. And then Levi comes along and she said, oh, please, Lord, now maybe my husband will be attached to me. But after three sons, and we don't know what the exact passage of years is here, her focus changes. She realizes Jacob is who he is. But she also realizes who God is. And so now the focus is off of her need. Her focus shifts to the goodness of God. The fact that, hey, I may not have a husband who loves me, but I do have four sons. And so she names this fourth son praise. Praise God. The troubling thing in this, and we'll close here. The troubling thing in all this is for as much as we get the impression but Jacob doesn't love this woman. He certainly doesn't have any problem having sex with her. And, and, you know, it's often been said that men have an easier time having a sexual relationship with somebody without love than, than women do. I don't, I don't know. The culture's working as fast as it can to kind of level the playing field, but I think that's still probably true. And I think sometimes people don't understand what a soul-robbing experience that can be, whether it's in the bounds of marriage or not. I mean, especially if it's not, but, but also in, in the bounds of marriage. You know, um, we've been conditioned to think about sex in ways that God never intended because we think about it or we see it or we ex see people experiencing it often outside of the bounds of marriage. So in very, very uh, often it's portrayed as something dirty, as something perverse, as something, um, you know, base, it was never created for, for that image. Sexuality was given as a means by which intimacy could be experienced between two people in such a profound and comprehensive way that it's the only thing that could possibly come close to the way in which we should feel joined to the Lord in body, mind, spirit, in every aspect of our being, we're joined to the Lord. And we can't fully appreciate that yet, but the day will come when we will, we will see him as he is and we will be like him. And we're referred to as the body of Christ uh, in a truest sense that 
Jesus says, he is in us and we are in him. You know, there's that, that intimacy that really trumps all, everything that we would know about intimacy. Well, the Lord gives us a paradigm, a way in which to experience, to join to somebody else in a way that is exclusive, that is total, that, that almost demands complete vulnerability between one another. And it's a beautiful thing. It's something that should be celebrated. It's something that should be cultivated within the marriage so that you have that, that relationship that's special. It's you and her, you, you and him, whichever. Um, and when it's done in a way that is just solving or itching a physical scratch, it just completely takes all of that off the table. And, and it turns it into something that, that, is, that is no more uh, meaningful than, than having one of your meals during the day. I got to eat because I got to go to work. I need the energy. I'll eat, then I'll go. And, and it's just shameful um, and sad, frankly, that this woman, Leah, who so desires to have the love of her husband, does not have the love but nevertheless has the, phys the physicality of, the, of sex. Now, in the case, in this case, because they are married, it's not that it's, it's blatantly sinful. They are married. And not every marriage is perfect. And, and in those days, having children, it was not a burden. It was a blessing. It, it was your workforce, and it was your retirement plan, and it was your posterity. And so people wanted children. Okay, so I don't I don't fault them for for procreating. It's just it's sad to depreciate something that God has given us, which is such a great gift. And um, and there we are. So we'll pick it up. When will we pick it up? It won't be next week and it won't be the week following. So in three weeks from tonight, we'll pick it up in, in chapter 30 and uh, continue on with the plethora of children that will be coming out of these two sisters. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. I thank you for my brothers and sisters and for their love for you and their love for your people, Lord. As we said in the prayer time that preceded this Bible study, Lord, what sanctuary we have here to have the fellowship of the saints, to have the love of God reigning in our hearts, having the love of God to apply towards each other in encouragement and edification. And, and we thank you, God, for that, Lord. We thank you for the love that we have for our family members. I thank you for my wife, Lord. I pray your protection over her as I, as I will be out of the home for, for 12 days. I pray, Lord, you would keep her safe. You would prosper her. You would give her a blessed time with her mom. Uh, Lord, you would keep her healthy, Father. And I, I pray uh, over my brothers and sisters in this church, Lord, that their homes would prosper, that they would be kept safe from illness or disease, Lord. I pray for my brother Jack especially, Lord, that this um, coming uh, tests and all that would not, would not point to something um, more severe than, than he can handle, Father. And so, Father, um, thank you for meeting us here tonight. We love you. We give you thanks. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.